Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by David French, Jonah Goldberg, and for his Dispatch Podcast debut, Michael Renault, our Deputy Managing Editor, although it turns out his real name is Michael Scott, so we will be referring to him as Assistant to the Managing Editor for the rest of this pod. We've got plenty to talk about. We're going to start with inflation and Joe Biden's speech this week on potential price controls, move to the state of the evangelical church, how it has shaped the Republican Party and vice versa, abortion, Chuck Schumer's latest vote for Democratic senators, and finally, uh, a little discussion of the abolitionist John Brown. His birthday was May 9th. Let's dive right in. Michael, I want to start with you. Just tell us a little bit about where we are on inflation. What has happened in the last month as we've been focused on some other topics? So if you're paying attention to the numbers that came out this week, the rise in consumer price index um, was not as severe as it has been in previous months, um, but it's still not very good news. Um, The consumer price index was up 8.3% for the month of April. That's slightly down from the month of March when it was at 8.5%. So we're still seeing in things like price of gas, price of food, numbers continue to go up. Um, The price of gas actually this week reached a record high at $4.40 per gallon. Um, So even though some of the numbers look like uh, there's a little bit of a cooling off, the economy is still in pretty dire shape. Chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, actually told NPR last night also that uh, the Fed's going to continue trying to cool things off, but it's not really looking good in terms of trying to avoid a recession altogether as they try to do this. Um, There are huge events, he said, geopolitical events going on around the world. They're going to play a very important role in the economy in the next year or so, he said. Um, I think we have a good chance to have a soft or softish landing or outcome Um, But that's a markedly different tone than what Jerome Powell is saying even just a few weeks ago. And David, we saw some uh, pushback, I think, from vulnerable Democrats that this is a real problem. It's not a political problem. Katie Porter, a single mother who's in Congress, uh, talking about the difficulty in having to put bacon back when she saw the price had risen that much. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's settling in that this inflation problem is real, it's prolonged, the steps that are going to be taken to try to rein it in are going to have a pretty dramatic effect on people's lives, in many ways, maybe as dramatic effect in in some sectors as inflation itself. Uh, If you're talking about it suddenly going to get a lot more difficult to buy a house, you know, I start to wonder, you know, we have housing inflation here where I live that is just absurd. It's just absurd what's happening to housing prices here. But then you add on top of that an increase in interest rates. And A, I wonder if that housing surge can continue. Uh, and B, you know, it's just, it's going to create a crunch. Now people are priced out of the housing market even more than they previously were. And so it's it's a mess. I think it's a mess that is um, A, so uh, it, it's, it's pain. The pain is so uh, it's felt on you know, such a widespread basis that at this point, the Democrats just have a colossal problem on their hands. I mean, they really are in the mode of just sort of praying for a complete Republican meltdown at this point that they have to have, be able to point to Republicans and say, yeah, I know you can't buy what you used to buy. I know you're losing ground in the real world, but these guys are just nuts. And that's all you've got left. And the other thing is, you know, this is introducing sort of a cultural shift in the U.S. because we we spend a lot of time in this country not thinking about inflation anymore, not thinking about rising prices anymore. And really, uh, those of us who were more connected to the the fiscal discipline side of conservatism, many of us who lived through the stagflation of the 1970s and early 1980s, um, were, you know, we were kind of looked at as old news. You can just spend money. You can spend and spend and spend and spend, and it's all going to be fine. And this, we're in the middle of a recalibration right now. 
Jonah, the president gave a speech this week about it, um, talking about price controls as an option to curb inflation. My impression is that inflation is a bit immune to your price controls. That's not really how it works. Um, curious if you had thoughts after the president's speech. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I kind of see the market responding with poorly dubbed captions of your price control kung fu is good but mine is better um because there's just <laughs> it's just it's such a ridiculous idea to you know to to bring back we see elizabeth warren proposing legislation um the ftc is getting its uh the the, the long prophesied fears of the FC, ftc becoming an economically demonic force in american life are finally coming to fruition um and the thing is, is like the problem, I, I just went on a rant about this on the, on the remnant, but like the problem Biden has is that he is absolutely correct that there are a lot of reasons why these problems are not of his making. Supply chain problems have been a real thing because of the pandemic for years now. It's not his fault that China has a zero COVID policy that caused them to close down the entire city of Shanghai, which is like one of the most important hubs of global commerce. Um, you know, uh, the, the war in Ukraine is not his fault. You can go down a long list. And also to be fair, Republicans under Donald Trump were all in for a lot of crazy spending, um, for four years that certainly laid the foundation for, um, you know, it's sort of like the camel, the straw that breaks the camel's back. I mean, it was bigger than a straw when Biden pushed through almost $2 trillion in COVID relief. Um, but that spending on top of the spending we had already done, I think the badly designed unemployment insurance stuff, uh, it made inflation almost inevitable. And that's not all of Biden's doing. The problem politically is that Biden cannot, for various reasons, um, speak honestly about it. So he has, you know, it's, oh, it's Putin's price hike. Or, um, you know, he tried to make the case that Build Back Better and the, the American Relief Plan stuff were actually anti-inflationary only when he finally had to realize that inflation was in fact a problem. Until then, he was saying it's not a problem or it's transitory. He made fun of people who thought this might be inflationary. And so the problem, it's sort of like George W. Bush in the wake of Katrina. This, the second you sort of get out of the lane of being an honest truth teller about what the problem is, um, all criticism of you kind of sticks. Because when you're not being honest and straightforward about the nature of the problem, um, there's very little, you, you, can't, you can't defend yourself. And um, you see this all over the place. And then Biden compounds it in this talk he gives about inflation where he basically says, um, um, you know, we're going to, I feel it in my teeth, this, the problems with inflation, you know, which is like, Okay, is that like receiving transmissions through your fillings? And but uh, and we're going to do everything we can. And then he says that we're going to do everything we can by asking Americans to pay their fair share in taxes, and um, and to not price gouge. And first of all, there's almost no evidence of actual price gouging going on. Uh, Elizabeth Warren keeps trying and failing to to do that. Um, but the way I think a normal American reads that is. Uh, here he's, here's this guy who just wants to stick to his original talking points and his original agenda and bend reality to give him the permission structure to do that. Sort of like saying build back better was going to be anti-inflationary. Um, even though it was designed when they didn't think inflation was a problem, it's, it's all pretextual. It's all BS. And I think that's the way it hits people. And then this lastly, I don't think it's his fault that there's a baby formula shortage, but my God, like. I, I don't want to traffic in stereotypes, but I think as a general rule, people with young new babies tend not to like focus on a lot of abstract political theory or economic explanations when they can't feed their new babies. And um, the idea that Democrats are on the wrong side of that issue, you almost have to have sympathy for Because again, I don't think it's their fault. It's just all this confluence of events. But when inflation is out of control and you don't seem like you're in charge and you don't have a grasp on things, 
you get all the blame. And that's the place that the Biden's in. Jonah, you anticipated my next uh, uh, question to Michael, Michael Scott, um, <laughs> which is the baby formula thing to me is fascinating. So obviously I have talked about this. I've been tweeting about it a lot this week um, in that I, I wanted to raise the profile of the issue because it felt like there were a lot of parents out there screaming and that nobody in D.C. seemed to notice the problem. That is done now. Very much the White House uh, has been asked about it at the White House briefing now repeatedly. They've put out a plan. Uh, Democrats in Congress are holding hearings about this now. There's going to be a House oversight hearing into it. Great. I am satisfied from the raising the profile of the issue question. Um, from the politics of it question, though, I completely agree with Jonah. Well, I mostly agree with Jonah that it is not the administration's fault. Um, however, this is an executive branch problem. It's not that Joe Biden told the FDA to shut down the Abbott plant in Michigan uh, that makes so much of our baby formula. It's that the FDA has been operating in this world in which they shut down a plant, had no plans, it appears, to reopen it, had no plans for how the country was going to get baby formula, and you have such a large bureaucracy operating within the executive branch. The very problem is that Joe Biden or any other president wouldn't have known about it either until all of a sudden six states were well over 50% in their out-of-stock numbers, uh, the rest of the country hovering around 40% out of stock. Um, and it's it's caused a panic because unlike toilet paper, um, there's no substitute if your baby needs specialty formula uh, or just formula at all. And by the way, this has really brought out the very worst in Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah, like, do not. To the just point that actually even. I've been enjoying it. I mean, I think that most of the people are trolls talking about how like, finally women will learn to be self-sufficient. You were made uh, to make food for your baby. Like, thank you for that. Um, brilliant <laughs> comment. I so enjoyed it. Uh, so I will Michael, say, on the politics I think the, side, the men who are saying that do yeah. not have wives. Right. Because like, <laughs> this like, is true. I don't care how traditional of guy you are. Husbands know not to like finger wag at wives about feeding babies. It's just not a thing. <laughs> <you do. laughs> Especially um, between the hours of three and 5 a.m. <laughs> so, Michael, my question is, uh, we see a lot of Democrats in the House saying, again, they want hearings. They want to know things immediately. You have the Biden administration from the political side, again, the White House. Um, saying this isn't new to them. They've they've been paying attention to it. Uh, at the same time, I think Jonah raises a good point, which is um, nobody cares if you say you feel their pain when their pain is that they don't know how they're going to feed their baby tomorrow. That that is such an existential crisis. This is the United States of America. It's 2022. Um, it feels like a more tangible way that people are going to talk about inflation. And I've noticed on the RNC sort of, um, you know, email list, et cetera, they've been really, really pushing this issue. You have some Republicans tweeting about it a lot, you know, blaming Joe Biden, et cetera. I'm wondering if this will actually be the, uh, will be the stand in for inflation, you know, instead of talking about how things cost more at the grocery store. Like this is such a tangible way and really visceral, whether you currently need baby formula or have ever had a baby um, and, you know, the formula was a day late in arriving at your house or you went to the grocery store and it wasn't there. Just that feeling of like, oh my gosh, how are we going to get formula for the baby? Any parent of any generation will remember that feeling. Uh, is this going to be the political topic for the next few months or is next week going to be something else? Well, I mean, I think you're right, Sarah, because as you say, if you've had kids, we have four, all four of our kids had baby formula at some point, if not for the longevity of when they were um, infants. But you look at other things involved in inflation right now, too. I mean, Elizabeth Warren keeps going back. I think she mentioned Kroger when she uh, got on her high horse with this um, you know, supposed price, gouge, price gouging bill yesterday. Um, people go to the grocery store. We all see the empty shelves, um, a result of the supply chain issues, but we're all paying more out of pocket for our groceries. We're all filling up our vehicles. This type of inflation hits everybody's pocketbooks in much more real ways. I think if, if you look at some of the aspects of the great recession in 2008 and 2009, there were, um, issues in the credit markets 
which really didn't hit everybody at the bottom of the scale the same way that going to the grocery store and not being able to find you know, staples at a decent price, milk, eggs, butter, things like that. Um, so I think it, it absolutely hits people that way that's going to raise the profile. And, and in fact, Pew um, had a poll out the day before yesterday or yesterday, and 93% of Americans, according to this particular poll, uh, say that inflation is either a very big problem or a moderately big problem. So you got 93% of Americans who say that inflation, yeah, it's a big problem. And that's far and away over what other responses in that poll were. So I think it's a matter of time um, before we see how badly this plays out for Democrats in particular. The other thing, and this kind of piggies back on what Jonah was saying too, I mean, the other thing about the, the Biden administration with the remarks that he made about inflation this week, uh, it's so easy to, I don't know who folks in the administration think that they're fooling by kind of obfuscating and avoiding the issue. Uh, Vox had a story out this week uh, pointing out the fact that the San Francisco Fed in late March, so we're talking six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, the San Francisco Fed had a had a, an analysis piece out basically showing in these huge jagged spikes, uh, core inflation in different parts of the world and then core inflation in the U.S. right after the American Rescue Plan was passed in early 2021. So right out of the gate, um, the evidence is there in black and white that some of the spending compounded upon other spending from the Trump administration, plus all these other factors, just shot inflation up right out of the gate. And they uh, estimate it could be as much as 3%. That's something like the $1.9 trillion um, American Rescue Plan contributed. I don't know how you can avoid uh, the consequences of this stuff politically, especially as we're coming up on uh, midterms in a few months. Yeah, just a really short point on this. I think when you add together things like shelves, empty shelves where baby formula formula should be, um, rising prices, the supply chain problems that we had a, months ago that still linger. You're continually piling on thing after thing after thing that for a huge chunk of Americans just doesn't feel like America, right? You know, for most, most people who are alive in this country, don't remember inflation. They don't remember the gas lines. They don't remember these kinds of challenges that we had in the 1970s and moving into the early 1980s. And I think it just creates and contributes to this general feeling of malaise, to use the Carter era term, that something's just fundamentally wrong. This isn't the country that I'm used to in some really basic ways. And, and that's just a huge problem Politically, for the Democrats, it's not all Biden's fault. There's probably a great argument. It's not mostly Biden's fault. This is something that's been going and building and building with two parties spinning like drunken sailors and the fruits of policy. You know, part of the baby formula problem is related to difficulties in importing baby, baby formula that have pre-existed the Biden administration for a long time. But when you're in charge and you're not hitting it head on in an honest way, and even if you are, if it's still there, I think that, you know, people just have this sense that things are just not right at a kind of fundamental level. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. So David, speaking of not right at a fundamental level, Tim Alberta uh, in The Atlantic had a really interesting long form piece that we'll put into the show notes on the current state of the evangelical church and politics, as well as sort of the history and how the evangelical church and Republican politics got so uh, intertwined. Uh, curious if you want to give us your 
thoughts on that piece and what um, what broader takeaways you have as we think about some of these primaries that are going on and some of the candidates that we're seeing rise in the polls in Virginia um, and the third person running in third in Georgia. Well, you know, Tim's piece was magnificent. I mean, I I really would urge that folks read it and he has done his homework and, and what he did is he, he did what reporters should do, which is he got his nose out of Twitter and he went and he visited churches to see what churches are actually, how they're actually changing, how people are actually struggling with some of the, the tensions within the church. And to, to paint with a kind of a broad brush here, what he found, and which is what you find all over America, and I get emails from pastors constantly, and I'm seeing this theme constantly, is there's a set of pastors in evangelical churches who are really trying hard to keep their congregation together and united around something around the gospel and not politics. That politics isn't sort of part of the package deal of church. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't address political issues at all. It's just not fundamental to the identity of the church. It's down the line on the list behind having trying to have vibrant ministries uh, to your city or you know uh, vibrant small groups, a uh, you know a, a outreach to addicts. You know, way down that list would be politics. And these are people who are trying really struggling to keep people together. And it's very, very, very difficult because if you address something, anything. You're going to enrage some people. And if you don't address things, you're going to enrage people. It's it's kind of in a microcosm, the reality that, you know, woke capital faces right now, where if they do address something, they enrage people. And if they don't address something, they enrage people. But the difference between sort of woke capital and churches is you've got a highly mobile congregation. And so... What's happening is, as Russell Moore explained uh, in a podcast recently, is that there are pastors who are embracing crazy as a church growth strategy. So they are all in on politics and then casting in anyone who's not all in as being weak, as being um, ashamed of the gospel, as being unwilling to face the times. And a lot of this is happening in non-denominational Pentecostal churches that are just totally alien to the mainstream media. The mainstream media knows nothing about Pentecostalism. They probably don't even know a Pentecostal and maybe never met one in their lives. And so it's happening in this, in this place that's completely alien to them, that's operating under a theology that's very that's alien to them. And what Tim Alberta said did was he kind of pulled the curtain back and he said, this is what it looks like in real life when a church from the right starts to dive in and wrap both arms around politics. A lot of it is about as um, kind of as awful as you might expect, you know, with people talking about ivermectin from the pulpit, right? Um, With people spinning out vaccine conspiracies that you wouldn't believe from the pulpit and growing exponentially while they do it. He he profiled a pastor whose church went from 100 to 1,500 who took that approach. That's an incredible growth rate. He talked about this guy, Greg Locke, who's not that too far down from me and down the road from me. And a lot of people get mad on Twitter when you, when people go see Greg Locke. And they say, well, there's lots of churches not like Greg Locke. Stop focusing on Greg Locke. Well, yeah, I get it. But he's had exponential growth being crazy. I mean, he he went, one of his things he went viral for was threatening to, to beat up a Dunkin' Donuts employee over masks. Um, and he he just gone crazy. And his social media reach is immense. More than 2 million people on Facebook follow him. They follow him on Facebook. That's, that's huge. That's far more than almost every other celebrity pastor in the U.S. And so what Alberta showed is that the way in which the church is being divided is be, really being divided between those people. It's not liberal and conservative. That's not what it is. There's no liberals here, or very few, very few. It's between people who are trying to keep the gospel sort of the main thing and keep together a church across differences, and people are leaning into the political moment in a very profound way. And that's where where your divide is. And Jonah, this piece was about how politics has changed the church, but of course, evangelical voters have changed the Republican Party as well. 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, one of the things I also just to put on my intellectual history hat, the there is this notion today that religion particularly popular on the left that says religion has no place in politics and yet you would not have gotten american progressivism without a very aggressive role of the social gospel movement um the founders of the american economic association were were like i think half of them were also pastors um uh richard ellie who's like the most famous member of it uh founder of the head of the wisconsin school of progressivism was also uh, a devout christian who thought it informed everything and I think that the, the, the truth is, though, in the modern era, that a lot of those, that one of the great ironies is that a lot of those forces were essentially quietist until Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter is the one who sort of politically activated a large number of evangelical Christians and then couldn't hold on to them, and they all started moving to the Republicans. And... Um, the thing that disturbs me, the thing that disturbs me about the original progressives, the things that disturbs me about, about the stuff that Tim is writing about, the stuff that David is writing about, is I really don't like um, sort of when you get the peanut butter of religion in the chocolate of of public policy in the sense that it's fine to have your morals informed by 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 religion and think I think it's not only fine, it's appropriate and good to have your, your, your views about society informed by your religious convictions. But where you get into trouble is to say you, when you start saying, if you disagree with this policy, it means you're a bad Christian. Or if you disagree with this policy, you are violating, um, some church teaching or, or, or worse, a tribal connection to a group that claims to have a monopoly on, on the, the, the singular reading of scripture or religious meaning. And the reason why that's a problem is that it becomes, that's just a very difficult thing to debate, right? It, it is a recipe for, um, thinking that your political opponents need to be destroyed rather than reasoned with. And I think that's true both in terms of the minds of sort of secular types who say, well, there's no reasoning with these people. And the mind of, of certain sort of religiously activated nationalist types who say these people are, are you know, anything between they just don't get it and demonic. And um, the public square, I think religion should have a place in it, but it needs to be driven by sort of liberal principles of persuasion and reason. And, um, and I think that too much of our politics on both sides operate as sort of, uh, it's sort of the wars of religion under different flags again. Michael? I think, I mean, I would agree with everything that, that Jonah and David had said. I think one of the things that strikes me about Tim Alberta's piece, and he's, he did a fantastic job reporting this, um, not that long ago, I mean, 12, 15, 20 years ago, a lot of politically active evangelicals um, were talking about the danger of seeing politics as the way to, you know, make the great society, if you want to use um, a term from LBJ. I mean, I remember Chuck Colson before he died, I think in 2012, Chuck Colson, Nixon's, you know, famously your infamous hatchet man who uh, became a Christian while in prison. He would talk a lot about the political illusion, which is a term he borrowed from Jacques Ellul, which is to say that uh, progressives would try to use the state, would try to use politics to craft society as they want it to be. And I think the the trap that, and I say this as a theologically conservative evangelical, the trap that I think um, a lot of our folks have fallen into that Alberta's piece underscores is that we're falling for the other side of the coin of that political illusion. So we see these things going on in the culture. We see, you know, evangelicals see things um, that get them stirred up and riled up. And most of the time it's for good reason. That's fine. But they want to wield the political sword. They want to wield the power of the state um, to try to enact change where half of a generation ago we were, um, you know, rightly criticizing folks on the other side of the aisle for doing that sort of thing. I think you look at things like Ron DeSantis in Florida um, and just the spirit with which he operates on some of these issues, um, the whole Disney kerfuffle. 
just kind of illustrates uh, that we a lot of evangelicals just want to increasingly wield the power of the state to try to get us back to this, what we think of as a great society, which to sound like you've all lived in for a minute, um, wasn't really ever quite that way. And, you know, one other thing about this, you, if you read the debate on Twitter, um, sort of the blue check debate between uh, academic right-wing evangelicals and, and right-wing evangelicals in the media, it's totally divorced from reality. And it's totally divorced from reality in this sense that they act like as on, here are two sides, the classical liberals who never conserved anything, sort of the, you know, the, the against the dead consensus debate for populism over uh, liberalism and the post-liberalism over liberalism. And there's that you've never conserved anything. Everything is slipping out of our fingers. And now we have to turn to a more state-centered approach. And it's all quite, um, it's, you know, I, it's all quite academic. It's all quite theoretical. And then you see what's actually happening in churches. And it isn't, you know, Louis XIV. Uh, it is, as I said earlier, it's ivermectin. It's vaccine conspiracies. It's QAnon, which has disproportionate. I know multiple people in my, in my circle of life who uh, believe in all or part of QAnon. Um, it's QAnon. It's election conspiracies. And so it, it isn't just that there is some sort of philosophical argument here and philosophical distinction. It is, yeah, okay, there are some philosophical arguments and some philosophical distinctions and approach, but an awful lot of it has just really devolved into this furiously angry, um, unhinged engagement that is you know, it's it's the far right Christian world that tried to get Ruby Bridges goes to school banned from the books, uh, from the elementary school curriculum here. Um, you know, what what's the high minded academic theory behind that? It's just a lot of fury. It's a lot of anger. It is a lot of um, conspiracies. So, you know, I feel like tw the Twitter debate about this is just completely um who is completely divorced from reality and who actually one of the people who actually has her finger on the pulse of where an awful lot of people are going. I hate to say it is Marjorie Taylor green who fundraises through reference, you know, through references to Satan. And this is where a lot of people are. It's one of the reasons why she's one of the top grassroots fundraisers. And we just have to recognize that. And I just, it frustrates me because I feel like um, the Twitter blue check Twitter uh, Christian right is defending a movement that doesn't exist and they're ignoring the movement that's actually there. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. All right. Switching topics over to the politics of abortion. We have... Protests continuing in front of justices' homes. David, I think you and I may discuss some more legality of that on AO, um, the flagship podcast. But since we're not on the flagship podcast, I wanted to talk just specifically about um, the politics, Jonah. Chuck Schumer bringing to the Senate floor a bill called the Women's Health Protection Act did not get the 60 votes needed to overcome the filibuster. But he also didn't get the 50 votes needed to say that they had a majority. Uh, Elizabeth Warren giving an interesting statement to Manu Raju of CNN after the vote, quote, I believe in democracy, and I don't believe that the minority should have the ability to block things that the majority want to do. That's not in the Constitution. What we're talking about right now are the individual rights and liberties of half the population of the United States. I think that's um, enough to say it's time to get rid of the filibuster. Getting rid of the filibuster would have done nothing to put this bill through. And if anything, of course, her side was the minority side, um, making that entire statement sort of interesting. So, Jonah, this bill has been criticized by the likes of Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, saying that it doesn't codify Roe. It would be a large expansion of 
abortion rights in the country well beyond Roe or Casey, um, potentially, depending on how you interpret it, meaning that you could get an elective abortion throughout a pregnancy, perhaps. Um, So what Chuck Schumer has done here, in my view, is have all of the Democrats take a vote on abortion on a pretty extreme abortion bill that then Republicans are going to be able to run on their vote. In the meantime, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and I believe Joe Manchin now, maybe Bob Casey as well, a Democrat from uh, Pennsylvania who had initially voted no on this bill when it came to the floor in February and changed his vote this time around, working on something that would just codify Roe, put the current state of abortion constitutional law and move it to be statutory law. Jonah, the politics of this, is Chuck Schumer a secret genius that I'm not seeing, or was this a a crazy, dumb political move for his caucus? Um, I I think it was a crazy, dumb political move. I don't want to get to that in two seconds, but first, um, speaking of crazy, dumb positions, the idea that Democrats are still trying to get rid of the filibuster when they're looking at a future where the Republicans may have, um, may not have 60 votes, but will definitely almost, almost surely have control of the Senate for a big chunk of the next decade. And their priority now based on like imagined weird kind of like otherworldly facts, um, as Elizabeth Warren laid out where she thinks they're in the majority when in fact they're in the minority and she wants to give you know, we saw this with the Build That Better stuff where, you know, Bernie Sanders says two people can't stop, shouldn't be able to stop the majority from doing what they want. When in fact, it was 52 senators, it was two Democrats plus 50 Republicans who were the majority. And the idea of getting, getting rid of the filibuster strategically is just so mind-bogglingly stupid for Democrats. And yet that's sort of, it's, it's, it's like, the, it's sort of like my point about Biden and with inflation. They can't get lo- let go of the old talking points. And the, and the old talking points are not catered to the existing reality in ways that make any sense. Um, which brings me to Schumer. Look, I we talked about this a little bit on the Dispatch Live, which Sarah and I attended because we actually care about this company. And um, uh, the, the, the basic problem, it seems to me, and you guys know this stuff better than I do, is that Roe, broadly speaking, without the little sort of exceptions that have accumulated at the state and local level, or the state level, and, you know, under federal law, if you sort of reboot Roe from scratch, Roe Ro is actually in an extreme position. Roe allows for abortions through the third trimester. Um, Roe is, n- and the, the Democrats have been living off of this idea that Roe is the moderate position. They believe it, they think it, they think it pulls that way because most people don't want to get rid of Roe. But when you pull people about getting rid of Roe, what they're really saying is, I don't want to talk about abortion and I don't really know what Roe holds. If you explain what Roe holds, they're like, no, 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 that's crazy. I'm fine with restrictions in the second and third trimester, depending on what they are. And so what Schumer, by trying to reimpose Roe, is actually taking the unqualified, pure, uncut version of what Roe allows without any of the modifications, which is an extreme position, which is just an incredibly dumb thing to force your caucus to vote on when... All of the polling right now says that whoever can claim the centrist, moderate, reasonable ground will come out on top of the abortion question. But Schumer is owned by his base on this in much the same way that McConnell's sort of fending off his base when he says, you know, he won't rule out a national ban on, uh, on abortion. And at least McConnell gives the sense that he understands the political dynamics and is trying to navigate them. Schumer really just sounds like he's just all he cares about is not being primaried by AOC, which is not a great way to be a majority leader of the Democratic Party in the Senate. Michael, do you have any reporting on the future of that um, compromise bill? I mean, David and I have talked about this a lot, that perhaps this will provide some wind in the sails of a gang of six style move on the abortion topic uh, in the House or Senate of sort of that middle that actually represents the vast majority of Americans who think abortion should be legal sometimes and illegal at other times. Collins and Murkowski, though, of course, have been working on this since February and no one seemed to care before. Do they care now? 
I am skeptical that that's actually the case, especially the closer that we get to the midterms. Republicans are going through all these primaries, as are Democrats, but the spotlight's on a lot of Republicans. I mean, there have been other things too. Immigration is one of these things we keep on hearing whispers that uh, we're going to move forward on and things don't seem to materialize. The China competition bill, I mean, we finally have a conference committee um, that Haley Byrd has, has done some good reporting on. We finally have a conference committee on that, but you would think that the China competition bill wouldn't have taken as long to get through. I think everybody pretty much agrees China's a problem, right? Um, but this is the kind of stuff that requires adults kind of coming to the table. And I think the incentives for that right now, um, unfortunately, are low the closer we get to the midterms. I just don't see any sign of that actually taking place other than whispers and, and rumors of people coming together. The other thing about this too, Politico had a story yesterday that I just kind of rolled my eyes at. And I mean, the headline the Politico ran is Senate Democrats imaginary majority. And you've got several Senate Democrats in here kind of bemoaning the fact that once again, Joe Manchin or others in their caucus are throwing a wrench in things. And I just have to wonder, like, I mean, so much of this is political posturing, obviously, in kind of the kabuki theater that happens. But who did not, what political outlet did not write some kind of a feature or story about Joe Manchin 16 months ago being able to do all this? We saw this with Build Back Better. Um, we're seeing this to some degree now um, with this abortion bill. I mean, it should not be taking anybody by surprise. And no, Chuck Schumer does not have an easy job trying to navigate anything through the Senate. Um, but man, he sure is not making his job any easier um, by, again, doing kind of the flip side of what Republicans are doing and playing to the extremes and not getting his own nose out of Twitter, so it would seem. David, what are we missing here? Chuck Schumer is Mitch McConnell's, you know, Harry Reid. He's the heir to Harry Reid, the evil genius. Chuck Schumer How is was put on this earth to make Mitch McConnell look like a genius. <laughs> Uh, I mean, look, the malpractice here is, is really staggering and it, and it truly is a symbol of the psychological hold that the, the base has on democratic politicians. Uh, you know, this is something where, you know, it, it doesn't even feel like there was a serious consideration given to an ounce of compromise. This wasn't like an agonizing choice by Chuck Schumer here. This was, oh, of course we're going to go beyond Roe KC. Of course, that's the legislation we're going to put forward. And, and all the activists who are now telling us, don't use words like choice, instead use decision, um, and are so deep in their progressive bubble. And from a human standpoint, I get it. If you are living in giant cities where 100% of the people you're around 100% of the time are just as extreme as you, if not more, it has an effect on a person. This is just documented. But how many times do you do the same thing? How many times do you run a playbook that says, cater to the base, and then Twitter shame Joe Manchin or surround his houseboat with kayaks, and this time it will work? That's, that's absurd. This is, it, there's just so much incompetence. I mean, I, I, I wrote a, a piece uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on, uh, on the French press and it was, can't anyone be normal for five minutes? Or can't anything be normal for five minutes? I mean, that we're, we're constantly facing abnormal crises like the baby milk, uh, the baby formula crisis. It's another one. Can't anyone be competent for five minutes? Can't somebody look and just say, hey, I know you feel passionately that abortion should be legal right up to the very moment of birth. But you know what? That's a 10% position in the United States of America. And we try to win elections here, and I have a bipartisan bill that will, in you know, in Chuck, Chuck Schumer's perspective, protect ninety nine point five percent of legal abortions. And uh, I've got bipartisan support on this, and we're going to run with that. And that would be political competence from the left. And no, that's just not an option. That's just not an option. And. And I just shudder to think what's about to happen in some in some red state legislatures, um, if Roe is overturned and, and that all you know the elite opinion holds, it's going to be landing into the states at a time of more dumb culture war legislation than I've ever seen in my entire adult life, where there's just a race 
just a race to, towards culture war extremism in, in red state legislatures. And you're going to start to see in a lot of places the incompetence flip side of the incompetence we've seen from national Democrats. So um, here's my plea. Can't anyone be competent for just five minutes, please? You know, um, Steve interviewed earlier this week for uh, the other installment of the Dispatch podcast. He interviewed um, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns of the New York Times and the reporting they've done about January 6th. And they get into part of their conversation and talking about why did Joe Biden come out governing the way that he has governed right out of the gate? And I think this is certainly true of the Biden administration, but I think it's true of Democrats where they are right now. Joe Biden wanted to be a president of consequence. People in his administration wanted to be, uh, they wanted him to be a president of consequence. I think so much of kind of the Chuck Schumer apparatus, right? He wants to be a leader of consequence. And to do that, he's got to play to his base. And I think, you know, to your point, David, when you're trying to be the leader, the party, the faction, whatever, of consequence, um, it's really hard just to get stuff done. All right. Here's our last topic. Speaking of getting stuff done. And (laughs) this week marked the uh, anniversary of the birthday of John Brown, the abolitionist who led the raid on Harper's Ferry. And I just noticed something, you know, a little unusual. It felt like there were a lot more people talking about John Brown uh, in the news, on Twitter, et cetera. I even saw a member of Congress tweet about John Brown's birthday, obviously in a positive way. Um, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we're talking about John Brown in 2022. And while I think we look back on John Brown as being so obviously morally right, John Brown obviously used violence and advocated for violence to bring down slavery. Uh, These were actually the words he wanted to be remembered by that he gave uh, to his jailer on the day that he was set to be executed. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. Prescient words, as it turned out, that was in 1859. The words he wanted on his epitaph, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Jonah, uh, (laughs) in 2022. (laughs) It's so great how the more hot button it is, the more certain I am you're going to Jonah first. Oh, for sure. (laughs) David, you're just far too likely to give a cool and tempered response to my prompt. (laughs) I want heat. (laughs) Um, Jonah, in 2022, we're talking about someone who was so convinced that they were on the right side of history, that their view of morality was correct. And history has vindicated them more than I think even John Brown could have possibly imagined in 1859. Uh, And he killed quite a few people in the bloody Kansas fights, uh, a massacre where he just took pro-slavery people out of their homes um, and killed them. And then, of course, the raid on Harper's Ferry led to the deaths of several people uh, on the other side and on his side, including his sons. Uh, Jonah, I guess my first question is just the philosophical one. Is there, is John Brown right? Has he been vindicated both in terms of what he believed, but also what he believed the correct tactics were? So as, as we discussed in the planning meeting yesterday, I see this entirely, entirely as a, as a attempt by Sarah Isger to set me up in some way. So I'm going to be very judicious about all of this. Um, obviously on the question of slavery, qua slavery, John Brown was correct. Right. Um, I think we can all stipulate that. And he might've even been tactically or strategically right that bloodshed was the only way this thing was going to get solved. Um, I am of the school that that does not give one permission structure to pull people out of their homes and murder them. And, um, and so we can get a little Marxist on this in terms of like the 
cold and personal forces of history made someone like John Brown inevitable, right? This is his logic is very, very similar to the logic of the Bolsheviks who thought, you know, hanging a few hundred kulaks to send the right message about the nature of the class struggle and the coming revolution was required. Um, you can be a soaked to the bone Marxist and Soviet apologist and still think that that was evil, which I do. And I'm not obviously a soaked to the bone apologist for the Soviet Union. Um, what worries me is that, yes, you can make, you know, part of the problem is our brains work by analogy. And, um, if you convince yourself that your opponent is Hitler, then you're giving yourself permission to do all sorts of things that would have been justified with Hitler. If you're giving yourself the, uh, if you're telling yourself that people who disagree with you about Roe v. Wade are like slaveholders, you're giving yourself permission to do all sorts of things that you think were morally justified with slaveholders. And I think this kind of the, the John Brown sort of, Hey, you know, you got to make, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet kind of stuff that we're seeing around there is actually pretty dangerous because as an academic historic matter about debating, you know, how we got rid of slavery and whether it was inevitable that we would have a civil war over it. It's a really interesting conversation. But when you start throwing it into the climate that we've been describing for the last hour, it seems much more likely to give permission to somebody who wants to be like the congressional baseball game shooter. Um, and, um, and I think that stuff is out there. I think it is. I think we're playing with fire with the protests around the Supreme court justices. Um, we know it's out there in terms of the guys who showed up on January 6th. And, um, and I'm, I'm legitimately concerned about it. So I, I'm, 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 I'm eschewing, my normal inclination, which is to make cheap jokes about any of this stuff, and I'll leave it there. David, you had some uh, historical thoughts on sort of just, again, was John Brown right? I mean, he was right in his prediction that uh, slavery would only end in blood, and in some ways he was almost perhaps too pessimistic. I mean, not pessimistic enough, because it w didn't just take slavery to end in blood. It was it took another almost 100 years, 99 years of uh, blood to end Jim Crow, a lesser scale, uh, lesser scale blood, but blood bloodshed on a lesser scale. But I think when you're talking about John Brown, I think Joan is hitting on something really important here. And that is there was the idea of John Brown and then there was the reality of John Brown. And the idea of John Brown was this sort of messianic warrior for righteousness that kind of after his capture at Harper's Ferry, um, that he sort of swept through this idea of John Brown swept through uh, northern abolitionist ranks where he was really revered by the end of his life. And I would really urge people to read um, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, which is, I think, the best single volume history of the Civil War out there. It's just phenomenal. And what he talks about is the way in which the reverence for John Brown uh, kind of broke the brain of Southerners. Because what ended up happening is, as the reverence for John Brown filtered back down south of the Mason-Dixon line, they didn't draw any, many folks in the North drew, actually drew a distinction between Brown's idea and his methods. So um, they, Northern abolitionists decried his errors of judgment, but then they endorsed the nobleness of his aims. Um, Horace Greeley called the Harbor's Ferry Raid insane, the work of a madman. But McPherson writes, this distinction be between act and motive was lost on Southern whites. They were cast into, quote, unreasoning fury. Why? Because they were very familiar with John Brown, the man, and completely rejecting John Brown, the idea. They rejected the idea of abolition, obviously, but circled the wagons about around the brutal reality of the man himself. And they saw the reverence for John Brown in the North as a reverence for his methods. And they saw it as an entire region embracing the idea of murder, murder to end slavery. And, and so this is something where, you know, look, uh, 
I think Lincoln's second inaugural uh, is one of the greatest pieces of speech making in the history of the United States, if not the world, about the awful, awful toll of slavery and and the you know the divine judgment placed upon the United States for for its slaveholding. And I think John Brown was right as a matter of prediction, but when we're looking at historical figures like this, we can't forget that he, he was he was a murderer. I mean, that's what he was. This wasn't this wasn't a guy who was gathering up a uh, you know a revolutionary army truly in in the way of the American revolutionaries. This was a guy who just would flat out murder people, and we need to remember that. And and I agree with Jonah that the more we revere flat out murderers, uh, the more likely it is that you'll get more of them. And there's a lot of people running around this country right now arguing that the stakes are just as high as they were in 1859 and 1860. And that makes me very nervous. Michael Frederick Douglass said, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry was all his own. His zeal in the cause of freedom was infinitely superior to mine. Mine was a taper light. His was the burning sun. Mine was bounded by time. His stretched away to the silent shores of eternity. I could speak for the slave. John Brown could fight for the slave. I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for the slave. I mean, I don't want to be in the position of disagreeing with Frederick Douglass on anything. Um, <laughs> um, that's the headline in which Michael Scott, <laughs> Michael Scott disagrees, <laughs> disagrees with Frederick Douglass. Michael Scott goes after Frederick Douglass. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I'm going to go in a different direction and completely disagree with David and Jonah and say John Brown is absolutely 100% correct, which is not true. That's not, that's not, that's not true. Um, I mean, a couple of things. Um, one, to your point, David, you had abolitionists um, in, in the Northeast, uh, like Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who were really pretty much... Um, papering over what happened in Kansas, which, I mean, if you look at what happened in Kansas in um, 1857, I think when John Brown went out there after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, I mean, he, he used a he used a sword, right, to rip people from their beds and butcher them. So, I mean, there's a, um, there's a grittiness and uh, an ugliness to that that I think gets papered over. And it, it makes kind of the lofty statements, you know, not to harp on Frederick Douglass, but it makes loftier statements like that probably easier to make when you when you do that. Um, but both what happened in Kansas, um, what happened in Harper's Ferry, um, David, you mentioned in, in some of our um, conversations before this call, um, Nat Turner, those things elicited, uh, if you want to go Newtonian here, those things elicited um, opposite reactions from Southerners that really escalated things. Um, yes, we were probably headed towards massive bloodshed anyways, but uh, it just ratchets those things up in, a, in addition to just being wrong to take life outside of, um, you know, outside the proper pathways to do that. It just is it, not prudent, I'll say that. Um, the second thing is, like, if you, if you look at Nat Turner and, and John Brown, and there are lots of other examples, too, um, these things didn't quite have the intended effect that, um, uh, that folks wanted them to have. And so it's a big gamble to take in a moment that we, the moment that we're in right now, it's an awfully big gamble to say, those people over there are evil. Uh, we have to take these extreme measures and act outside the confines of what we've agreed to do as living together in a country, living together in a state, and just exact my own idea of justice, exact my own um, retribution, vigilantism, whatever. Um, it's an awfully big gamble that it's going to pay off the way you want it to pay off um, because I don't think the effects, I don't think the results of Harper's Ferry or what happened in Kansas really matched what John Brown would have wanted it to match, at least in the short term. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we will look forward to talking to you next week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.